So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory to bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello, today we have Dr. Kelsey Wrightson, the Executive Director of Deshinta in Yellowknife, Canada. She received her PhD at the University of British Columbia and has had professional positions at Queen's University's Center for Indigenous Arts and also at University of British Columbia. Welcome, Kelsey. If you could please take a minute to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got to Deshinta. Hi, thank you so much for having me. As you said, my name is Kelsey. I'm calling in from Chief Dragi's territory, which is Treaty 8 territory in uh, Yellowknife, the Northwest Territory. So high up in Canada, north of 60. Um, we're actually not in the high Arctic. We're in uh, the boreal forest or the Canadian Shield. So I'm looking out my window and I see lots of trees and rocks and um, beautiful fall weather. And I'm I'm really grateful to be living and working here on Chief Dragi's territory, which is the territory of the Yellow Knives Dene First Nation. And they're one of a number of different First Nations who whose territories are found now in the Northwest Territories or now in Canada. Um, and it's one of the communities that Deshinta works the most closely with. So I have the, the great honor of working as the executive director at Deshinta Center for Research and Learning, uh, where we deliver a combination of university courses, community engaged workshops and research sessions that are all centering around indigenous knowledge and specifically the knowledge that comes from the indigenous communities that we're working with and from the land that we're working on. Um, so we spend a lot of time doing a lot of community engaged practice and consultation, but the bulk of our time is spent out on the land learning and working together. So Masicho, which is thank you uh, for having me. Kelsey, thanks so much for being here. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about pedagogy at Deshinta and its relationship to the land and how you all think about land-based pedagogy. Absolutely. So the work that we do is really centered first and foremost on the land. We do all of our programming in an entirely land-based environment. Uh, so what that looks like is that in different communities, well, in different communities, it looks like different things. But for example, the program that we're running right now, which is in Chief Draghi's territory, is out on a place called Mackenzie Island. So for three weeks, students and elders and community members are out in a bush camp which is set up with McPherson canvas tents, wood stoves, an outdoor bush kitchen. And they're all working and living and learning together in um, what we call a big learning community. 
Um, really what this does is it flips traditional hierarchical understandings of who is a teacher and who is a student on its head. Um, so really the first and most important teacher is the land. All of the classes are determined by what the land is telling the elders and the people that know how to read the land. So for example, you might wake up in the morning and think, oh, today is going to be a great day to go and learn how to make dry fish or go and learn how to set nets. The land might have something else in mind when it sends gale force winds your way. <laughs> um, so you might end up staying at home and learning something else instead. So when we're centering the land, we really work very hard to make sure that we're celebrating the kinds of knowledge that comes from that space. Um, we're working with elders and community members to make sure that we're honoring the, the long intellectual histories and continued disciplinary practices that happen that come from the land. Um, so all of our teachers are, um, we call them bush professors. They're very, very skilled and know the land very, very well. And they also know all of the laws and stories that come from that land. So our approach to learning, um, while it combines um, some things that might look like traditional academic or university knowledge, it's really centered and focused on drawing out um, what can be learned from actually spending time together in place. Kelsey, knowing that the Shinta practices are largely unintelligible to Western universities, how can insights from the Shinta speak to those who want to challenge and bring new pedagogical practices into those Western spaces? Yeah, that's actually been a really long and hard fought battle is to push against those uh, sort of Western notions of what is learning, uh, what learning looks like, and what knowledge can be drawn from books and what knowledge can be <laughs> drawn from actual embodied practices. Uh, so one of the ways that we've been uh, most effective in speaking back against those kinds of Western understandings of what is learning and knowledge is by actually demonstrating the knowledge that can be can be derived from the land and, and can only be learned when you're on the land together. Um, the best advocates for that are absolutely the students and absolutely the Bush professors um, who know it well and who experience it firsthand. Um, so one example that we always like to go back to and start talking about is in, in the process of setting up camp, in the process of learning how to uh, work in a community together, one of the things that needs to happen is we need to go out and collect uh, materials from the land, ori in particular, which is spruce boughs. And that is um, what goes on the bottom of the tents in order to make sure that all of the tents stay warm and dry um, during the cold winter months or in these wet, wet fall months. But in that process of collecting ori, uh, students go out and learn from the instructors about what the proper way to do that is, what the proper and ethical and legal and moral way to collect something from the land, to receive these gifts from the land. And one of the professors uh, taught the students that the way that you can read the consent that the land is giving to collect these spruce boughs or collect this ori. And it's something that would only have been drawn out. You can't sit in a classroom and learn about that process. You can't sit in the classroom and have an elder sitting there and say, you tell me about how we do this um, because it's the land that actually draws out those stories. It reminds people about how to behave in a particular way. And so it's really, really important to be able to then draw that actual 
embodied experience of being on the land together into uh, some of the academic literature that people are learning about consent, about law, about tradition and about story and where um, legal traditions, indigenous legal traditions and knowledge is being held and, and transmitted. But it starts, it starts from that actual experience. And the people who then go through that experience can remember and articulate and share that information. So it, it really, it, it is absolutely a challenge to try and push back against those understandings of what is knowledge. But I think it, through demonstration, it, it really proves how, how that embodied knowledge um, is carried and, and where it's important. I really love that, that idea or that truth about being transformed through practice and that there are certain things that we can't learn abstractly, but can only learn in the process of being transformed by doing. I know that you have a PhD from, you know, a regular academic institution, a wonderful one, but not an institution that is quite like Deshinta. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey from being at a more um, traditional academic institution and being transformed into, you know, a different kind of, of pedagogue or a diff- with a different relationship to knowing and transformation. There was a moment, it was about two years ago, maybe a year ago, where um, we're in the middle of the semester. I have a huge shopping list of all these random things that I'm supposed to go get and I have to go into an elder's shed and I have to find more uh, sleeping mats because it's an emergency or out of sleeping mats, people are cold. So I'm in this elder's shed and I'm up to my knees in frozen caribou heads and hides and trying to reach for this roll, bedroll that he's got up in the corner. And it was this moment of like, how did I get here? How did I get to this beautiful, magical place where this is my life? And it's, I've spent some time kind of reflecting on that because I think it is actually really important to be able to articulate how I ended up in this place that I'm in right now and being able to do the things that I'm doing. And I don't think that I could be here without um, going through what I think looks to many people as a very traditional academic pathway. I I did an undergraduate degree in political theory and international relations. I did a master's degree and then a a direct to PhD. But the things that I chose to study along the way, I think incrementally prepared me to be in the place that I am now. So in particular, my master's degree was oriented around how I, as a non-Indigenous or white settler person, could ethically position myself in relation to the First Nations whose territories I'm living and working on right now, who and how I could ethically understand my roles and responsibilities as a white settler whose family had come um, and settled in in what is now North America in, in a number of different First Nations territories. So that took the form of looking at um, treaty relationships as both a legal and political and ethical set of relationships. And looking in particular at the treaty who Treaty Six, which is the territory that I was born on and where I grew up. Um, So that was a really important framework for me and a really important time for me to start thinking about what my roles and responsibilities were and how I could try and uphold 
the obligations that were laid out in that treaty negotiation, not in the Western Canadian legal interpretation of the treaty, which reads it as a document of seed and surrender, but instead thinking about it as a set of ethical obligations of how to live together and be together in place. And so that has really informed my approach to learning. It informed my approach to my PhD research, which was, again, very much grounded in how to be a responsible um, member of a, of a community and own the privileges that I have as a, as a white settler, but also um, thinking about and working towards um, the goals, shared goals of decolonization. How would you speak to educators who hear what you're saying and maybe open to different ways of knowing but aren't sure what first steps look like? Um, (laughs) That's a really tough question (laughs) to answer. Um, I think it takes, first and foremost, it takes, for me at least, it's been about thinking about my own own skills and my own responsibilities and my own obligations that I might have and starting with what I can do myself. Uh, So there are so many resources out there. There's so much work that has gone into um, creating educational resources, creating open access, creating Twitter feeds, creating Instagram stories that um, are really oriented around critical education spaces. And I think taking the time and care to start engaging in those is really important. But in terms of the own of my own work that I needed to do, I think one of the most useful things that I, I uh, constantly remind myself of and is, is part of that sort of framework of treaty uh, that I use to, to practice as a daily practice, I guess. One of the things that I think about is the importance of being refusable, which is a term that I like to use as a way of positioning myself in relation to other people and owning the fact that there are going to be some pedagogical spaces, there's going to be some spaces of learning that are not spaces for me. There are other things and other places where I should learn and other conversations that I need to engage with, but making sure that there are spaces of learning that are created and held for, in the case of Indigenous folks in particular and Northern folks in particular, um, is really important. And the work that I do is often creating and protecting those spaces so that other people can learn within them. Um, So as educators... I think it is really important to recognize that there are sometimes conversations that we don't need to lead and that we don't even need to be part of. Recognizing where those spaces are is sometimes a challenge um, and sometimes we are fallible, but that's okay. Um, It's that aim to make those spaces that I think is really crucial and, and creates the opportunities for critical learning. Yeah, I think this concept of refusability is really powerful and really rich. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you might approach like teaching white students to have an ethics of being refusable. Like how might you instantiate this like core like ethical concept in a kind of pedagogical relationship with students who need to be more open to being refused? Uh, I think it's super challenging. And I've seen a lot of it 
I have seen it in practice where I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Dylan Robinson uh, at Queen's University, who's worked a lot around how to actually implement Indigenous or Aboriginal spaces of irreconcilability or um, spaces and practices of refusal, where he creates both within his classroom, but also within his work and his artistic practices, uh, spaces that are for Indigenous folks only, or narratives and stories that can be heard by Indigenous folks with their experiences in particular ways that are not accessible to white and settler audiences. And I think naming and pointing to the fact that settler and white folks part of our privileges that we carry is often the assumption that we should have access to everything, that we should be able to know everything, is re a really important first step to say that you are structurally, you've been acculturated to think that this is your right, that you should be able to know everything, when in fact that's not the case. It is, is a starting point and then actually demonstrating that in practice. I had the privilege of actually leading a class that was bifurcated around folks that identified as Indigenous or non-Indigenous. And we set up a space where we came away from that conversation and, and talked about what it was to be outside of that conversation and what kind of obligations would arise because we were outside of that. So I think demonstrating that is really important, being able to point um, to key Theoretical texts, because often students um, and learners can engage in those theories or textual things first and foremost before they start having to unpack their own emotional feelings about the fact that they're being refused um, is useful. But then really the most important thing is to just demonstrate that and then make sure that you are um, creating and supporting spaces um, that you might not be party to. I know there's been a handful of scholars who've helped the Shinta in various ways. So I'm curious, what has been the role of Western-trained academics in your program? I think there's a, there's a couple different roles, and it depends a little bit on the community and the folks that we're working with. Uh, so in some communities, the priority is making sure that students come away with those land-based skills. But there's a lot of community members, elders, uh, Bush professors, um, and students that really see the value of Clicho. They, they say uh, being able to walk in two ways. Sometimes it's called two-eyed seeing. Um, sometimes it's called writing knowledges. But it's really about building skills that are transferable across different contexts. The work that Dishinta does, though, is first and foremost grounded in the land and Indigenous knowledge and communities. And so in our context, I have come to see the academic skills that I bring as kind of a toolkit that I have access to um, that enables me to support the creation of the spaces for Indigenous and land-based learning. So I have, you know, a vocabulary and I have a specific set of skills um, to be able to write grants that then enable uh, those spaces to be created. Um, I have ways of, because I have that toolkit, I have language and vocabulary that can speak to multiple audiences um, while still being true and creating those spaces um, for Indigenous-led land-based education and teaching. So I think there is actually a really, a really critical role for some of those more traditional 
uh, skills, Western skills that I gained in an academy and the faculty that we have often, they have PhDs and they, they bring those skills to bear in the classroom with the students uh, as a way of, of supporting the Indigenous Bush professors that we have as well. In a previous conversation, you had mentioned that there's this validating function to the presence of academics, however problematic that may be. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably one of the, so one of the more uncomfortable ways that I have come to understand uh, the academic privilege that's bestowed when you earn a PhD is that it comes with a kind of validating feature. So what we've seen happen is that even though the knowledge is already there in communities, even though the knowledge is being practiced by these young people's neighbors, their grandmothers, their elders that are around them every day, it's when uh, an external person comes in, um, sometimes holding parchment, um, that says, that knowledge is incredibly valuable. That knowledge is a whole library filled of information that all of a sudden it shifts the way that uh, young people, um, even members of the community see and understand their neighbors or family members and understand the knowledge that's there. So it does have this interesting power dynamic to it where it's the external validation from an academic body that then kind of validates the knowledge that's already there. But we're constantly trying to push back against that by saying it's always been there. It's always been in your grannies. It's always been in the land. It's always been around you. You have a whole encyclopedia, a whole library around you. So what we're doing is just helping you to see it, helping you to see what's already there and helping you articulate what's already there and understand that knowledge that's already there. Sure. It seems like a, like an entirely different approach to like a tokenizing approach where historically it was just a researcher wanting just one or two things, but you're actually going in there and saying, no, there's a wealth of knowledge on all sorts of things, no matter what subject. Yeah. I think that's actually the, the core of the pedagogy is that it's not teaching a single skill, but teaching how to learn those skills plural, learn many skills, learn, learn how to engage with community members, engage with family members in ways that will then allow you to learn more and continue to learn more. It also seems like a distinctly like anti-extractive way of thinking about knowledge. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about sort of the dynamics of both research and pedagogy that can be very extractive on on Indigenous people and Indigenous knowledge and how what you all are doing is quite different. Absolutely. Like the whole structure of Dishinta as an organization is to reverse that. So like I live and work in, in Yellowknife now. Um, we, the vast majority of our employees are all up here in the Northwest Territories and, and living and working in their communities. So we, we really try hard to create educate, education and employment opportunities that are resisting the very extractive movement of knowledge from the North to Southern institutions or to Southern researchers. And part of that is just 
inherently flipping the power dynamics in a classroom setting um, or in a, a workshop setting. So because we we do all of our work on the land, um, when you bring a researcher or an academic or a teacher into that context, the traditional sort of hierarchy of this is the instructor, these are the students, these are the people that support the students is completely reversed because you understand very, very quickly who it is that has the knowledge to keep you alive. And it is, it is very much like you listen to your elders because if you don't tie the knot the right way, your tent's going to blow down and you're going to be really cold <laughs> or really wet or in a lot of trouble. And, and while that's a, a very tangible and, and physical manifestation of switching that power dynamics, it also transfers into all different kinds of relationships, including reversing that knowledge extraction, because you are, by virtue of that inversion of that power dynamic, always reminded and recognizing who holds, who holds the valuable knowledge. Um, and I think that is really important for uh, researchers to acknowledge um, and then hopefully be able to embody in, in terms of their, their future research and practice. Like that knowledge extraction still happens and it, it's a really big problem for a lot of communities who are, you know, zapped of resources and are getting a bunch of folks coming up and wanting to, to learn and, and learn about climate change. And, but uh, we, we work really hard to try and challenge that, I guess. Kelsey, I know Deschamps is influenced by Indigenous resurgent thought, especially with the involvement of folks like Leanne Simpson, Glenn Colthard, among others. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what Indigenous resurgent thought is how it informs Dashinta practices, and then what does it tell us about marginalized knowledges? I have come to learn about Indigenous resurgence. I, you know, I started reading about it in textbooks. Um, I started reading about it in articles. But this is one of those really great examples of actually seeing it embodied, actually seeing it being practiced has completely transformed my understanding of what Indigenous resurgence is. Um, so for me, I see resurgence when I see elders and babies hanging out together in the bush. When I see the six-year-old teaching me how to pluck a duck. Um, when I see how empowered and strong Indigenous women and men are when they're working together on hides and how incredibly uh, proud young people are when they are able to harvest their first caribou and able to articulate how they did it according to their own laws um, and how that harvest is going to be able to support their community and support the elders and their family through food sovereignty. So Indigenous resurgence to me is those practices, is um, uh, seeing those legal traditions, those legal, those laws being embodied um, and lived, uh, seeing generations who have been separated from their land and from their communities and from their families being able to reconnect in strong and healthy ways, and then creating more opportunities and more spaces for that to happen. So sometimes it comes in a really fine-grained form. Sometimes it's something that's really big and, you, you know, you have that impact. And sometimes it's just every Everyday, everyday actions, you know, somebody joking in Willaday, the language, or 
teaching their dog how to sit in the language, things like that. I think it's really challenging for traditional classroom formations to to be able to incorporate some of the learning opportunities that happen from the land just because of the way that a traditional classroom is set up. But that's okay because we can recognize it and we can name it and we can um, we can say what the limits are of this classroom. And, and rather than holding uh, the classroom on a pedestal as the optimal learning environment, we can then instead be critical of what the limitations of that format are and what the opportunities are if we if we were to change or challenge that. I also think that there are there are so many resources and people have spent so much time engaging and creating resources that can be shared. And I think that that is really important to bring in those voices and those often take forms that are not necessarily in the format of a of a textbook or of a, of a journal article, but instead learning how to read different things as academic texts is a really important methodology. So that's something that I actually did during my PhD research was to learn how to take, for example, an article of clothing that holds in it so much environmental knowledge, um, so many connections to family, so many um, is an embodied example of political um, relationships and wellness, to learn how to read that as a text or as an academic text and and draw out the theories that are coming from that. Um, So being able to do that and apply those skills to different kinds of resources and different kinds of sources of voices. So music videos or comic books or video games, I think that's a really important skill that can then be transferred outside of a classroom as well. We had a a lot of really interesting conversations, I think, leading up to this recorded conversation. And there was one time you had mentioned that you were invited to make your own gloves and how that process of being invited to make something of importance in the community taught you all these different lessons. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and then how you made sense of it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of things that I've learned from this one pair of gloves. One of the most important things is about the creation of long-standing relationships. So these these gloves I've made, um, but we're actually a bunch of people made them because they're hide gloves. So Puglia is one of the elders and bush professors that we work with. He's incredibly skilled. He shot the bear that was in camp um, and then uh, taught the students how to prepare the bear in the right way. And then all of the students from that program were able to take home um, mitts, bear hide mitts that they, that they made. And he gave me these pieces of mitts um, and I remembered, uh, the first time I met Puglia, it was about eight months prior to that. I was, you know, trying to be tough from the South, like, don't worry, I'm going to be fine. It's January. It's minus 30. <laughs> I didn't bring the right gloves. All of my bush gear is like clearly new. <laughs> and he looked at me and he just looked at my hands. He was like, your hands are cold. And I was like, no, they're not. I'm totally fine. And it was this moment where I connected him giving me these bear hide mitts, pieces of bear hide mitts to that first moment, because I was like, okay, he saw me, 
He saw that I was cold. He remembers that I was cold and I'm going to need these in winter because these are relationships that I'm committed to. This is a place that I'm committed to. And and these are relationships that I'm committed to growing. And I think part of giving me pieces of mitts is also really important because he he gave me these pieces of mitts and all of a sudden I had a huge obligation. I'm like, I'm not going to let the, the, all the work that went into this, all the skills and, and all this knowledge that went into producing these pieces of mitts go to waste. So I, I made, and I remade these mitts. I had to go and I had to ask for help. I wasn't sure I had the wrong needle, which is why I was breaking all the time. And there was this beautiful moment where I actually had to go into my own grandmother's uh, leather making kit. So I used her all and I used her needles um, to be able to to put together these these hide mitts. And there was a moment after I had made and unmade them a couple of times where I finally got to wear them out and Paul saw me and he just went, he gave me a little nod and he was like, good job. I felt so proud <laughs> because I I was living up to my, my side of the deal, which was, you know, you've, you've been given this gift. Now you have to make sure that you, you honor that gift in the right way. Don't let them sit on the shelf, put them to use. And now every time I, I wear those mitts, I'm reminded of all of the people that went into all of the work that went into it, all of the, the reason why those mitts came to be is because of Paul's relationship with the land, because of the student's relationship to that hide, um, because of my relationship to my grandmother. And it's a, a really beautiful embodied lesson of, of what it means to have these shared responsibilities and, and have these, these relationships that I get to have. I love this idea of shared responsibility and I think sometimes the way that I think about my relationship with my students is not like, like I have all this knowledge that I'm downloading into their brains, but actually we have a shared responsibility between me and the students for creating something together and like going on a journey or having a process together. I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about how you think about like this obligation that like when you're given access to a space, to people, to land, to ideas, to books, like how, how do you instantiate that obligation? I instantiate it in a very particular way um, because I'm not on site and teaching right now. So for example, like what I see as my obligations right now when we have a program running because I have the privilege of being able to be in Yellowknife, um, work with these elders throughout the entire year, create a program together, um, work with the students, get them to the place where they actually get to be out on the land. Um, My obligation then turns into something different. My obligation, because I have, I've had all of those experiences, is not to go out there and participate and be an active person in the classroom, but to cre- ensure that that space is maintained um, and ensure that uh, the folks on site who are do- doing that learning and teaching have everything that they need to be able to do that in safe and healthy ways. Um, so right now, that looks like a lot of grocery shopping. <laughs> 
<laughs> it looks like a lot of engaging with uh, funders, doing all of the finances, making sure all the receipts are tracked down, um, going on daily grocery shops and uh, getting, making sure there's enough fuel out there so that people can go hunting. And there is no, to me, there is no separation between the work that I do during a program that looks like that and the work that I do after a program. All of those things are, are incredibly important and incredibly valuable. And I cannot do the research. I cannot do the curriculum building. I cannot do the pedagogy without also doing all of that other work that I, that I do. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kelsey. Uh, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you, Kelsey. Oh, it was my pleasure. Great interview. Lots to think about. What are your thoughts initially, Ashley? Yeah, I think one of the like really powerful, interesting things that I think Kelsey brought up is like being very explicit about the limits of the classroom or like the limits of the like Western traditional classroom. I mm-hmm. think, you know, like sometimes we we try to think that the project of decolonizing knowledge or making knowledge in the institution more intersectional, like that everything and anything can be done inside these traditional institutions if only we approach them differently. And I think we can definitely do things a lot better than we tend to do them now, but there's something really powerful about saying like, there's something about this structure, there's something about this form is not capable of doing everything. It is not capable of, you know, like making real some of this like land-based pedagogy, this community-based pedagogy, even though we might be able to bring it in in small ways here and there. Like there's something about this form that is capable of doing some things and is not capable of doing others. Yeah, for sure. You know, what I, what I really caught was it, it seemed like there was a thread of humility that kind of tied a lot of these things together. Totally. But usually when I think of humility, you may think, you may slide into the idea of thinking that you're just sort of accepting things, that you're sort of demure, that you're not asserting yourself. And I don't think that was the case. And, and kind of to the, to the example that you point to is that we have to understand the limits of the traditional classroom, but we also have to do it in a way that's sort of asserting our voice, that we're not accepting what we're given, but also Mm -hmm. done in a way that's humble in the sense of, well, we don't exactly know how to integrate these things. We don't exactly know how they can speak to each other directly. And this kind of gets at the, one of the biggest thoughts that I've had during this interview, which made it difficult for me, was moving around that, that notion of incommensurability Mm -hmm. or or what she mentioned, um, irreconcilability, which is, you know, we're trying to envision an entire different epistemic worldview and understanding. And yet, we're mired in this, in this world of, of power hierarchy. And so it's oh, like, yeah. well, I can accept that, right? And I can be humble in operating in new spaces, but I'm also not going to accept that the conventional is the one that we should be holding up on a pedestal. And we should actually be critiquing it while also trying to find other, other spaces. But that notion of incommensurability was a tough one that, that kept going through my mind during the interview. Yeah, I mean, I think in a certain sense, like all all like radical political orientations and work is like grounded in this super uncomfortable space, which is like 
on the one hand, the necessity of recognizing our limitations and the ways that we have been constructed precisely by the system we're fighting That's right. and right the necessity of of continuing to push and to fight and to transform and for me like part of of the powerful way that kelsey approaches this like you know having to do two things at once is this idea that like in the process of trying to to make things better or different that you're transformed in that process so it's like the humility of being open to being changed as you're trying to to push things in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I saw that too. And I know that in our classrooms, when we're thinking about social justice, oftentimes it's maybe just kind of on the on the structural level, mm-hmm. um, particularly around institutions that are perpetrating these things, which is necessary. But I loved how she started with, um, uh, you know, I, I asked her about uh, how would you kind of give a roadmap to to folks who aren't familiar with these sort of practices. And she immediately started with sort of an assessment, a a positionality of herself, what skills she brings, um, what responsibilities she has. So I appreciated that, which I think, you know, when we're teaching, uh, when we're teaching the canon in our classes, reflecting on one's responsibilities and um, experiences of those texts is not something that we typically do. Yeah. And I also think, you know, she she raised something about the kind of discomfort with the way, with the power that academic credentialing brings with it that I think is also related here. Like the, and I think, you know, when we, when we enter our classrooms so often, the assumption is like, well, I have this PhD, I am the instructor and therefore, right, like, you know, I think the dominant discourse is like, I want my students to recognize my credentialing even more than they already do. Like, I want them to see me as an authority more than they might be, yeah. you know, liable to on the, de- like, you know, in a, in a default setting. But I think, you know, something that Kelsey was pointing to in terms of this humility is also like being critical of the power dynamic that the academic credentialing or that validation brings into not just the classroom space, but like the wider social space. Yeah. She mentioned that there's positives to it, that it sort of, you know, it validates knowledge that doesn't necessarily need to be validated in the first place. For Um, sure. But then of course, there's also some drawbacks. I think, you know, the question that I still have is sort of, what do we do with all of this? Mm. Right. In, In the sense that, you know, I know many people are turning to outdoor learning, literally just having their class outside yeah. Our conversation is clearly that that it comes out that land-based pedagogy is much different from just having your class outside. For sure. Right. And then we had also asked, well, how does, uh, well, I mean, we didn't ask this. I was talking to her before and we were talking about how, you know, how is it even seen intelligible? How is it seen as uh, something that can fit into these traditional, or these contemporary conventional understandings of the academy? And uh you know, I'm kind of left with um, how do we integrate this into into these spaces that we're already in that that really are really tightly held when it comes to like different epistemological conventions. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, I think Kelsey said this. Like, I think there are just certain things that might not be able to be integrated fully into the institutions as they exist. But I do think that you know, something else that Kelsey said that maybe helps us a little bit is the idea 
that the kinds of skills that we are learning and teaching and pushing towards and the kind of, you know, reflection and alternative epistemologies that we can bring into the classroom, that those are sets of skills. And I think we need to, we, we can think about them as like really helpful sets of skills that can be used to transform and to, and to change things in the world, you know, just because it's the things that we can, you know, we can't create every tool in the toolbox, maybe inside the existing university classroom. But I think part of what I heard Kelsey saying was like, there are some skills that we can make sure to prioritize in the university classroom. And those skills can be useful, even though we recognize that you know, those tools aren't going to be the ones for all kinds of jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. I think of one of the tools she had mentioned, which was uh, the ability to read different objects and things and mm. and artifacts as academic texts, right? So what does a, a winter count look like when you're actually trying to understand it in terms of, you know, a, a cultural history or even a political document? To me, I think that's at least one thing that you can do in your classes is to say, how do we challenge epistemic conventions by actually drawing in different sources of knowledge that would even push you? I mean, because, you know, I can't read some of these artifacts and some of these, these um, items uh, as well as someone from that community, but at least you're open to it. At least you're trying to understand that there's different knowledge that comes from different sources. So that was one of the, the takeaways to that. Yeah, totally. And I think like there are lots of places in the humanities and social sciences where we already do a version of this. Like, you know, I teach films and sometimes pieces of artwork and sometimes, you know, music videos or, you know, like these alternative, especially people who do like media studies or cultural studies or, you know, forms where we're, we're looking at cultural objects. I do think that you know, there, there are methods for doing that that we could be expanding, right? Or thinking about really differently and in their proper, their proper context. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Theme music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.